Thank you very much. I see some of you may be worried that I had a big wadge of paper in my hands as I'm walking out, but it's uh, double print, it's big font and uh, double space, so you'll be home for lunch, don't worry. Dave was joking earlier that they were going to change the clock for a calendar, so I'm not sure what he meant by that, but here we go. Um, yeah, you know, great testimony from Marius. Um, I would, I, I've had the privilege of being able to spend some time with Marius, uh, talking about his work, talking about his business, and um, I would just commend him to you as a, as a brother who does work very hard. Um, but when I think Solomon was writing, you know, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, he definitely didn't have dentists in mind. <laughs> so today we're going to be looking at making good work and developing a good work ethic. Um, but before we get into the talk, I want to introduce myself quickly. Uh, I'm married to Saffron, who was singing this morning. Um, for those of you who are new or a visitor, um, she was the one with the long blonde hair, not the chap playing the guitar. <laughs> um, but Keith was my first ever boss um, when I used to work in a chemistry lab many, many years ago. Um, it was a bit like sort of Walt and Jesse from Breaking Bad, that, except we weren't making crystal meth, we made contact lenses. So... Um, you could say that in our own unique way, we were uh, bringing sight to the blind. And that's the end of the bad jokes, I promise. So I became a Christian when I was 24, um, but I grew up in a Christian house. Um, and I always remember my dad saying to me that if you honor God, he will honor you. And that has been one of the guiding principles of my life. Um, and I, I take that into my work every day where I can. Um, my journey to what I do now has been filled with, you know, times of testing and blessing, but I can absolutely see God's guidance through it all when I look over it. I started my life doing scientific research, um, but for the past 10 years, I've had the privilege of uh, working with over 100 different companies, uh, mostly at board level, um, and it's a bit hard to articulate what I do. When people ask me, what is it that you do, it's, I find it quite difficult, but Effectively, I work as a non-executive director and I chair board meetings for companies and talk about vision and strategy and succession planning and those sorts of things. Um, and I believe God has really blessed us as a company, um, but we have worked really hard to get to where we are today. Um, in addition to that, we also have a software company that we have, um, that we run in our sort of spare time, as it were. Um, I absolutely believe that we should be ambitious, but we need to keep in mind that we seek the kingdom of God first. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is looking for a return on investment from your life. Uh, the parable of the talents makes this really, really clear. Um, one of the main drivers of my life is that when I die, I hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So over the years, I've been to hundreds of management seminars. Um, and the vast majority of these talks... Uh, I could pretty much give you a place in the Bible where it's talking about the same thing. Uh, it never ceases to amaze me how much modern research about the workplace has actually been in the Bible for thousands of years. Um, and sometimes I have great joy in pointing that out to the speaker. Um, you know, and for a book that was written over a period of you know, 1,600 years, three languages, multiple empires and cultures... 40 different authors, it's got amazing consistency in terms of its insights and beauty. Thank you. <laughs> and the pump house agrees. So this picture here demonstrates some amazing work. 
um, which you can't quite, you can sort of see. This is, some guys took all 63,779 cross-references in the Bible, and they drew an arc between each of them. And the color corresponds to the distance between the two two chapters, creating this rainbow-like effect. And I find this sort of thing absolutely fascinating on a number of levels. I love the way these guys have taken their skills in data visualization and applied it to God's word with a result that I think brings glory to God. Um, There is so much depth in scripture and there's so much in there that we can just use in our workplace that I just find it really exciting. So I think this is a great example of good work and I also just wanted to sort of see it on the big screen which is why I've put it into the talk. Um, So today's talk is on the subject of developing a good work ethic which in my view naturally leads to creating good work. So I want to explore a few areas today around this topic and hopefully give you a few things that you can think about. How we act in the places that we work really matters. After Keith kindly offered me a job a few years ago, I walked into the office on my first day and I sat down at a desk next to somebody that I'd been at university with. She viewed me with quite a lot of trepidation and it was probably justified. You see, back in my university days, I was not the upstanding citizen you see standing here before you today. No, sir. I wholeheartedly lived with the pagans, and she remembered that. And it wasn't until a few weeks had gone by that she came up to me and said, there's something different about you. You've changed. You're a different person. And I said, well, hopefully, because I've become a Christian. So, you know, that's what I'd hope would be the case. When Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray... He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What Jesus is effectively saying here is, Lord, may your name be made holy. Um, And one of the primary ways that God's name is made holy is through our conduct. What we do matters, and how we live matters. When you think of the work that you do, is it just something that you do to pay the bills, or... Do you see something in it that can advance the kingdom of God um, and signpost the way to Jesus? I think we need to catch a vision for the plans that God has for us in our work. And this helps turn what can be the day-to-day monotony into the joy and excitement of being part of the eternal purposes of God. One of the most commonly used uh, stories in management training Uh, tells a story of when John F. Kennedy visited the NASA space station. And he saw a janitor carrying a broom. And he walked over and he asked the janitor, he said, what are you doing? And the janitor responded, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. The perspective that the janitor had of his part in the project to put a man on the moon influenced the way that he worked so much that he was noticed by the president. And when Paul is writing to the Thessalonians... He's trying to get this message across to the church. But Paul's vision is so much bigger. We're not aiming for the moon. We're aiming for heaven. Paul goes to great lengths to highlight that how we live and how we work are critical components to standing out in the crowd, just like the janitor. My intention today is to give you something to think about and to pray about and to live out in your work. And hopefully I'm not going to go too off piece with all this, and it will all make sense in the end. But I want to start by looking at some things that Paul had to say to the Thessalonians about work. So in Acts 17, 
we get some backstory behind Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. He arrives in Thessalonia with his companion Silas. And as was his custom, Paul went to the Jew first, and he went to the synagogue and reasoned from the scriptures. And he said to them, you know, he proved to them that Christ had to suffer and, and die and be resurrected. And then he says that this Christ is Jesus. And this persuaded some of the Jews and some of the God-fearing Gentiles and some of the prominent women in the city to become Christians. But this caused an issue with some of the other Jews in the synagogue who decided they were going to round up a mob and start a riot. They go to the city officials and accuse Paul and Silas of being troublemakers and defying the orders of Caesar because they obey this other king called Jesus. They send, this sends the officials in the crowds into absolute turmoil. And Paul and Silas have to escape under cover of darkness because of the threat of persecution. And I just think, aren't we glad that could never happen where we live? Paul writes to the Thessalonians with this backdrop of persecution and a very young church, many of whom are recent converts. He opens up one Thessalonians with these words. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I read these words, I was struck by how they gave me a framework for understanding how to make good work and develop a godly work ethic. As we go through the remainder of this talk, I want to show you how good work is prompted by love, produced by faith, and inspired by hope. So let's look at how good work is prompted by love by looking at Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, Paul reminds the Thessalonians about the kind of role model he and Silas were when they were with them. He goes on to say that the Thessalonians imitated him, and by implication, Jesus. And as a result, they were an example to all of the believers in Macedonia. He commends them for the reports that he hears about their work and about them turning away from their previous life to serve God. And this is the first part of the puzzle we see here starting to take shape, that good work provides an example for others to follow. In chapter 2, we see how Paul mentions that although he had suffered previously in Philippi, he he had a boldness uh, in God to preach the gospel. He highlights how he didn't try to flatter the Thessalonians, nor was their motive to make money out of them for the sake of the gospel, nor were they looking to get glory from people. He writes to them, And he says, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her children. And because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden for anybody while we preach the gospel of God to you. When our work is prompted by God's love... We have a willingness to share our lives with those around us. Showing an interest in people's lives builds relationships and trust and opens up opportunities to share the gospel. Paul stresses that they worked hard and diligently in order that they might not compromise the message of the gospel. The way in which we work will have an impact on how people receive the gospel message. Proverbs 18 says, that one who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. We need to be careful that our work ethic doesn't compromise the gospel. A Christian's work should always 
be done unto the glory of God because we love him and because we want to honor him with our efforts. Paul says his conduct among the Thessalonians was holy, blameless, and righteous. He says that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. I find it interesting to see how Paul brings in these parental references into this letter. In many instances, what we learn about work starts at home. Paul says that he cared like a mother, and he encouraged and comforted and urged like a father. When our kids look at us working, what is it that they see? So recently, our daughter Imogen came home from school and announced to us that she'd set up a chocolate business, and she'd already had a number of orders. So we discussed it, and we thought perhaps school wasn't the best place to start selling chocolates, um, sort of envisaging the phone call from the headmaster. Um, so we said, well, let's find another venue. So the annual Coon Snowdrop Walk um, seemed like a good opportunity, seeing as Imogen's grandparents live in Cooned. So we made some chocolates. Imogen made a logo for her company, and we worked out our pricing strategy. So we knew that if we made 20 bags of chocolates... We wanted to sell them for £2 a bag. Ingredients cost, two, cost £10. We were going to give 50p from every bag to the guild hall, um, which meant Imogen stood to make £20 if she could sell them all. So we got her set up in the hall, and we left her under her grandmother's watchful eye. At least we were hoping that was the case. Um, and we went off on a, we went off on a walk. And on the way back, we were quite nervous. We thought, had she sold any chocolates? Is she going to be upset? Were all the customers going to be being sick? (laughs) So to our relief, we walk in and we see a beaming smile across her face. She'd sold 15 bags of chocolates. Um, And by the time we'd finished our tea and coffee, she'd sold the other five bags. So we had a happy little girl and a really proud parent moment. I'm not telling you this to brag or boast, maybe a little bit, but... There's no point in being humble if you can't tell anyone about it. Um, but, but I do strongly believe that we need to be encouraging our children and grandchildren to be entrepreneurial and take risks and work hard. As I think about Imogen in this story, I see some parallels to how Paul felt about the Thessalonians. He couldn't see what was happening in the church. Were they okay? Were they still holding on to the faith? Had they sold any chocolates? We see in chapter 3 that Paul couldn't wait any longer. He had to find out what was going on in the church. So he sent Timothy to encourage and teach them. Paul was worried that somehow Satan had got in and the church had been tempted and that all of his work would have been done in vain. So here we need to recognize that an element of good work is done in the spiritual realm. In chapter 5 of Thessalonians, verse 8, Paul reminds them that Since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. We saw at the start of this letter how Paul reminds the church about their work produced by faith, the labor prompted by love, and the endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He now applies those same words of faith, love, and hope to elements of a warrior's armor, specifically the breastplate and the helmet. Now, perhaps when you're hearing this, you're thinking about Ephesians 6. That's a good connection to make. However, Ephesians was written 10 years after Thessalonians, so the original readers probably wouldn't have had that as a reference point. 
But I think that any literate first century Jew or God-fearing Gentile would be making a connection to Isaiah 59. In Isaiah 59, Isaiah says, We walk, we look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. He then goes on to explain what is the reason for this darkness. And he says it's because justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Does any of this sound familiar? Could it apply in 2019? Isaiah says that God is watching the situation and is appalled that there's nobody to intervene So God himself steps in. And it says that the Lord puts on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He then goes on to explain how God brings about justice and redemption. So I think Paul is using this scripture to encourage the Thessalonians in their situation. The powers of darkness have always sought to disrupt and destroy the good work of the kingdom of God. But we have a God who fights our battles and provides us with his armor. The church has sometimes been compared to a blacksmith's anvil. And I love the old saying that says, Pound away, you wicked hands, the hammers break, the anvil stands. Jesus said he'll build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Good work for Christians is not just something that we do with our hands. It's something that we also do on our knees. There's a profoundly spiritual element to it which requires courage, diligence, and steadfastness. So Paul then concludes chapter 3 by saying that Timothy has come back to him with a glowing report of how the church is growing in faith and love, which brought great comfort to Paul. They'd sold some chocolates. In chapter 4, Paul starts to offer some practical advice on how the Thessalonians are supposed to live and work. He urges them to continue to walk in the way that he showed them, in order that they would please God. He outlines the instructions that he gave them on how to live a holy life, and he reminds them specifically that whoever disregards this isn't disregarding him, but they're disregarding God. So we need to make sure that we're following God's instructions when we're living and when we're working. In 2 Samuel 6, we see a story of David moving the ark Back to Ark of the Covenant, back to Jerusalem. They put the Ark of the Covenant onto a cart to transport it, but they should have been carrying it using poles on the shoulders of priests, as outlined in Exodus 25 and Numbers 4. As they're moving it along, one of the oxen stumbles, and the Ark looks like it's going to fall. And a man called Uzzah reached his hand out to touch the Ark to stop it from tipping. And God's reaction was not to say, Thank you, Uzzah. No, God kills Uzzah instantly. And this may seem a little harsh to us. Maybe thinking, well, oh, it's a bit harsh. But theologian R.C. Sproul explains it this way. He says, Uzzah believed that the mud would desecrate the ark, but mud is just dirt and water obeying God. Mud is not evil. God's law was not meant to keep the ark pure from the earth, but from the dirty touch of a human hand. Uzzah presumed his hands were cleaner than the dirt, and God said no. If God tells us as a way we are to live and work, we should listen and obey. We play around with God's instructions at our peril. In chapter 4, verses 9 to 13, we see Paul zone in on some practical advice 
about how we are to work. And again, he seems to lead into it all, talking about love. So 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 to 12, says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will be dependent upon nobody. The first thing to notice is that this love is taught to us by God and exemplified in the life of Jesus. It's a gift of grace given to us. We also see that they're commended for loving all of God's family throughout Macedonia and not just the people in their own church. But Paul urges them to continue to love each other more and more because if we're honest, sometimes it can be easier to love someone in another country than it is to see someone you see on a reg- to love someone you see on a regular basis. Paul says that in addition to loving each other, we also need to have an ambition to lead a quiet life. So when Paul is speaking about a quiet life, he's talking about being steadfast, about being patient, about being peaceful, and not being people who are constantly fighting, worrying, and arguing. If you think about Jesus in front of Pontius Pilate, you'll start to get the picture. And this is an area where I think we can have a real impact in our workplaces. Stress, worry, and anxiety are massive issues in today's workplace. And I know that there are a number of people in this room today who are doing good work in these areas. And I would commend that. Paul says in Philippians 4 that we should not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, and with thanksgiving, present our request to God. And then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So I've had a number of experiences where business owners have emailed me at 3 o'clock in the morning, absolutely stressed and worried about their business and how things are going. And I normally email them back, not at 3 in the morning, because I'm asleep. Um, But I'll email them back and just say, look, just go and look up this verse in Philippians 4 if you've got a Bible. And either it's going to have an impact or it will put them to sleep. But either way, they'll get some benefit. So, um, but Paul then tells the church they should be people who mind their own business. So we've probably all been in situations where we've stuck our noses into someone else's business and then regretted it. And if you haven't, then it's probably worth a few moments of reflection. But if we get involved in other people's lives, it should be by invitation. Even Jesus stands at the door and knocks. If we're busy working, providing for our families, learning to love each other, we're not going to have time to be busybodies. In 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul has some strong words for these types of people. He says, we hear some among you are idle. They are not busy, but they are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. So, There's a chap called Professor Jordan Peterson who's a best-selling author, and he's having a remarkable impact, particularly on young men, by telling them that before they go out and try and change the world, they should learn to keep their own bedrooms tidy, which is pretty good advice. Um, But I think Jesus said something similar. He said, take the plank out of your own eye 
so you can see more clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. So before we start looking around to see who's more idle than we are, perhaps we should pause and just take a look in the mirror. The opposite of good work is idleness. So we do need to be aware of the corrosive power it can have. Two Thessalonians was written approximately six months after Paul's first letter. And in part, he wrote it because he'd heard about reports that idleness was creeping into some of the lives of church members. In his second letter, he escalates his warning about idleness, and he commands the believers to keep away from people in the church who are idle. Harsh words, perhaps, but Paul understands that bad company will corrupt good character. Management guru Jim Rohn once said that you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. And I think there's possibly some truth in this, particularly in the area of character and work ethic. Who we spend time with will influence how we think and how we act. So think about the five people that you spend the most time with. Is one of them Jesus? Our work should bring glory to God and provoke a response from people who don't know Jesus. But it should always be prompted by love. And if you think the love talk sounds a little flaky, think on the words from Leonard Ravenhill, who said, it was not the nails that held Jesus to the cross, but his love. There is no better work than the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. So now I want to turn to focus on how good work is produced by faith. So we're going to jump now to Matthew 14. And I want to show you how Jesus taught his disciples how good work is produced by faith. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of only a handful of stories outside of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to be included in all four Gospels. So when we want to emphasize something and we want to um, you know, make a point, we might use bold font or we might use italics. But in Hebraic worldview, they use repetition. So when we see a story retold in each of the Gospels, we should pay close attention to it. So the context of this passage is that Jesus has just found out that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded at the request of a young girl. So the passage reads as follows. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's getting late already. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. But Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave to the disciples and the disciples gave to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides the women and children. So I want to show you here quickly how Jesus is using this situation to teach the disciples about how faith will create good work, produce good work. So the first thing that we see is that despite Jesus' own emotional state, 
He sees a crowd and he has compassion on them and healed them. In Mark's account, it says, he taught them many things because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And here we see an object lesson of good work prompted by love, putting the needs of others first. The second thing that we see is where do we look to solve our problems? So given that there was about 5,000 men there, we can assume that the crowd was probably somewhere in the size of about fifteen to 20,000 people. This is the largest crowd recorded in the Gospels. And the disciples' intention of getting Jesus to send the crowds away is most likely driven by them wanting to shift the problem of feeding these people onto somebody else. They would have known that given the location of where they were, there was absolutely no way that the surrounding towns could have fed that many people. It would ima- it's, it's like 20,000 people being on top of the Stiper Stones and then being sent to the co-op in Minsterly to get their tea. You know, just make sure you're first in the queue. Um, but in Mark's account, the disciples also say it's going to cost eight months' wages to feed this many people. So they're constraining the solution to the problem to the physical resources, and they're not taking into account any kind of supernatural intervention. So in our work, do we look for answers only in the natural, in our own strength and resources? Or do we stop to consider what kind of solutions a little faith may bring? So next we see Jesus gets them to take responsibility. Jesus sees right through the motives of the disciples and throws the ball back into their court. He says, they don't need to go away. You feed them. You give them something to eat. The challenge to us is that Jesus is saying, we have a responsibility to feed hungry people around us, physically and spiritually. And then Jesus shows us how to get this done. Jesus gets them organized. He instructs the people, the disciples, to get the people to sit down on the grass. Now, we can just sort of read over that, or we can think about the massive size of this task. Imagine 12 guys trying to get 20,000 hungry people to sit down in one place. You know, that, that is just a huge task. Good work requires organization. But things don't just happen on their own. They require effort and diligence. You can't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. But look at who's doing the directing and organizing. It's Jesus. I remember reading a while back um, something written by Korean missionaries, South Korean missionaries, who'd been com- who commented on a trip, from the West, a trip to the West. And they said how amazing it was how much we get done in the West without the Holy Spirit. Organization is essential, but it must be done under the direction of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we get to the crux of the matter. Jesus shows the disciples a pattern about how our work is supposed to be done. So firstly, we gather all of our resources, no matter how great or small, and we give them to Jesus. Jesus then looks up to heaven, and if you're reading Matthew's Matthew's gospel, you can substitute the word heaven for God. Um, So he looks up to God, and he shows, which shows us that we need to focus our vision on the source of all blessing and recognize that God is our ultimate resource. Jesus then gives thanks. Giving thanks to God helps us to put our gifts, skills, and experience into its proper context. It helps us 
from, helps to stop us from building um, our identity around the work that we do, which is a, in itself a, you know, another talk. But, and it refocuses our, our vision on God. The rabbis used to say that we should thank God for a hundred things a day. And you should try it. It's actually much harder than you think. And it's not because we don't have anything to be thankful for. And then Jesus breaks the bread. And I put it to you, this is absolutely key to understanding what good work is in the eyes of God. If we want to be useful in God's kingdom and do good work, we need to be broken for the things that break God's heart. Sin, idolatry, injustice, self-righteousness. We need to lay down our own hopes, dreams, and ambitions. And like Jesus say, not my will, but yours be done. When we give our work to God, he will take it, break it, and remake it for his purposes. Zechariah 4 verse 6 says, It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Do you have the faith to trust God with your work, with your career, with your life? Or are we trying to do it in our own strength? And finally, after all of this, the disciples were ready to feed the people. When our work is done with diligence and thankfulness and brokenness and faithfulness, God will take our loaves and fish and multiply the impact like we never could. So we've seen how good work is prompted by love, and we've seen how it's produced by faith. So I want to conclude now by briefly looking at how good work is inspired by hope. In feeding the 5,000, we see a huge crowd searching for Jesus and looking for answers. Today, we live in a world where people are still searching for answers. Did you know that there are over 3.8 million Google searches every minute? In 1 Peter 3, verse 15, it says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect. This verse presupposes that the hope that we have as Christians is evident in our lives and so that people ask us about it. In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul outlines what this hope is. He says he knows how much the church is suffering from hardship and persecution, but he reminds them that one day there will be judgment for those who disobey God and justice for those who've been faithful in suffering for the sake of the gospel. He says that this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And Paul isn't just making this imagery up. Again, he's drawing on a passage from Isaiah, but this time, chapter 66. We're not going to go into that now, but if you want some homework, that's an interesting chapter to look at. So this is our hope. Jesus is coming back. So we need to get hold of this and let it shape the way that we live and work. I think that many of the challenges our nation faces have their root cause in a lack of hope. We can be a prophetic voice in our workplaces by living lives that are inspired by hope and that cannot be shaken. What we hope for determines what we live for. In Malachi 3, verse 16, it mentions God's book of remembrance, where the work that we do gets written down. And these books will be opened, 
when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 to 15, Paul writes about what will happen at that point. And he says, Each one of us should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire, with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. And if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even as one escaping through flames. So what is it that we're building with? Is it wood, hay, or straw? Or are we building with gold, silver, and costly stones? Wood, hay, and straw all exist above the ground. They're visible. You can see them easily, and they don't cost much. You can plan to feel quite quickly, and it can look impressive very, very soon. But Paul says that a life built on these things and work built on these things will not last and won't stand the test. On the contrary, gold, silver, and costly stones are not immediately visible. They're buried underground. Hard work and effort goes into finding them. But when they are found, they're immensely valuable. Gold, silver, and costly stones can stand the test of time and test the test of fire and results in rewards for those whose lives have been built upon them. So let's work in a way to build a life that will stand the test. If we love God and continue in faith, we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, which is our hope. Thank you. I'll hand back to Terry.